thank you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. It is very important that we know the God we worship. It is also imperative that we discern how God defines himself in his word. If we do not take the time to know our God, we will never know ourselves. We might think we can never know God. When we really think about God, we can see some apparent tension. How can we say, for instance, that God is simple on the one hand, but also incomprehensible? How can we say that God is separate, but also personal at the same time? These are just some of the instances. Please join us as we seek to answer these questions and many more, and remind ourselves that we are the creatures, and He is the great Creator King. We continue to go through the attributes of God, and as we work through the attributes of God, we obviously cover an incommunicable attribute this week again, where it is God who is almighty. This is not something we can attribute to ourselves. Uh, this is not something that a creature could claim for oneself. When we look at almighty, it comes from the Hebrew, or the Hebrew name El Shaddai, which means God, El, and Shaddai is almighty. And so this thought is that God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, there is no authority over him. So simply stated, we say El Shaddai, or God Almighty. Now we considered uh, the nature of God uh, being infinite and, and where he is, dwelling everywhere and being able to penetrate clear into our hearts. Uh, looking at Psalm 139, where the Lord searches David at the beginning, and David then gives a request for the Lord to search David. I thought it would be interesting to have a different view. Whereas I mentioned Job uh, being a book where El Shaddai or Shaddai is mentioned more than any other place in Scripture. In fact, most of the references in the Old Testament are concentrated in Job. And how Job presents God as Job interacts with God in chapter 40, first confrontation, as I mentioned, sort of a passive-aggressive confession before God, but the reality of Job wrestling with God who's able to peer into our hearts and, and what that means and almost presenting God as a bit of a stalker, uh, at least how Job presents him and has this understanding of what God is doing and doesn't see this as something that's so comforting. But of course, by the end of the book, he comes around and he ultimately sees the comfort of God being El Shaddai. So this leaves us with the question then, what is the true bigger issue of God being El Shaddai, God Almighty? As we look at this, we'll just simply divide it up into intimidated by the Almighty, where it's a little scary to come into the presence of an Almighty God. But then secondly, how there is ultimately the comfort of the Almighty. And so let's begin by intimidated by the Almighty. As we mentioned last week, Job sort of presents God as a bit of a, a stalker, whereas David in Psalm 139 um, presents the comfort that the Lord searches his heart, and David actually invites the Lord to search him, convict him, right at the end of the psalm. Now, uh, this is something that's rather uh, impressive to, to learn how we pray before God, they were actually inviting God to search us, to uh, bring to light things that are out of order, uh, things that are not conforming to his will, and desiring the Lord to actually chip away at these things. That's really what the request is. 
so it's not seeing God as, as devious. It's not seeing God as tyrannical in any way. It's actually the joy of knowing that the Lord is going to conform us to his will uh, and bring us to a true godly sorrow, that we really are sorry for our sins. So we have that take in Psalm 139. It's important to keep that in a backdrop in wisdom literature, as Job is also considered wisdom literature. And when we think of God then being all-powerful, not only is he pure into us knowing who we are, but even the Apostle Paul wrestles with this a little bit, right? In Romans 9, when he deals with Jacob and Esau, and he talks about how the Lord consciously loves the younger, Jacob, and he passes over the older, Esau. And so as you have this interaction of Paul basically using like what we talked about this morning, sort of the rabbinic debate structure of question and answer and walking us through uh, this method of interacting with, you know, God's the one who chooses and what does that mean that God chooses? How does this come to pass? It leads up to the ultimate conclusion uh, and challenge of this where you have one who says, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Right? So you think of God being almighty. Those who are the Lord's are going to be the Lord's. And so how can God hold anyone accountable fundamentally? I mean, we're, we're just going to do what God wants anyway, right? I mean, that's, that's the accusation of God being almighty and the implication of this. And how does the Apostle Paul answer this with the, with the inspired answer? He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Romans 9, verse 20. And so right there, when we look at that, it's sort of a slap in our face, isn't it? Because it, it puts us in a place of recognizing God's almighty. He is all-powerful. We're mere mortals. We, we are creatures of his hand. And so when, when we just put it bluntly like that, without looking at all of Romans 9, but we just take, you know, the objection, we take the answer, it does sort of make us think, well, how is God gracious? How, how is this understanding that God is almighty something that, that we really like? And this is where in Job 40 verse 2, when the Lord calls Job to account, and he says to him, Will the reprover, which is another way of saying the fault finder, contend with the Almighty? So think about that declaration. God's calling Job to account saying, oh, you want to argue with me and bring me into court? Okay, you want to reprove me and rebuke me? Well, what do you have to say to the Almighty? I mean, if you think about that question as a mere mortal, that, that's overwhelming. I mean... How do you come into the presence of the almighty God who creates all things and have him ask you, well, you want to rebuke me? Okay, what do you want to say? Rebuke me, go ahead. And that's why in Job 40, verses 3 through 5, Job basically says, okay, well, you're just too intimidating for me, is basically the force of it, and, and it's too scary to interact with you. Well, that's a cop-out. As I mentioned, it's a passive-aggressive uh, repentance. It's not really, boy, Lord, I'm really out of, my, out of line. I don't really understand who you are. You're beyond my comprehension, which is where Job goes in the second uh, rebuke when the Lord uh, calls him to account. But right here he says, okay, I'll just be quiet, whatever. 
And, and we kind of know this as parents when our children react this way. This is where you kind of say, Lord, help me. Uh, because you know, when the child responds that way, you're like, oh, I know you're not sorry. And that's sort of what's coming through here where, yeah, it sounds like he's kind of humble, but he's not sorry. He, he doesn't really have a godly sorrow at this point. And we say, well, then, then why is God being so aggressive with Job, right? Because you think here he is as the Almighty identifying himself with his name. You know, it doesn't put El before it, but Shaddai is still the, the force of God Almighty. You say, well, why is God being so cruel to Job? Well, think about what has happened. So up to this point, God has been silent. And now we have basically chapter 38, 39, the Lord speaks. But Job up to this point has been very vocal, along with the other counselors who are speaking. Zavaliphaz, in 5 verse 17, talks about the celebration of the reproof and the rebuke of the Almighty, right? So Job's supposed to take this as an opportunity, like Psalm 139. So He's not trying to be rude or offensive. He's saying, hey, you know, let the Lord search you out and, and be convicted and confess what, what needs to be confessed. Well, Job's reply in chapter 6, where he says, the, Almighty, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. Terror of God or terror of hell is, is what he says there. So basically, he's not seeing God like Psalm 139 of the searcher of the heart. But he's seeing God as the almighty stalker, the one who is everywhere present, who just looks at his people and randomly shoots arrows. But chapter 13, we have that Job hasn't fully lost hope with God. But by chapter 13, he proposes that he enters into the presence of God. Because if he can make his case with God, God will submit to him. And God is one who will ultimately concede that Job is right. Job 23. Uh, he does not see the Almighty as anywhere present. Basically, he sees the Almighty as a terrifying presence. So Job's looking for the Almighty, but he can't find him. But the Almighty is, is just this tyrannical being who's oppressive. And Job feels really small in his presence. By Job 31 verse 2 Job is so dug into his self-righteousness that he actually sees God as doing something wrong. Which is why God says in Job 40 verse 2, Shall the reprover, the rebuker, the fault finder contend with the Almighty? But in Job 13 verse 27, he actually lays out the view of God that is not a positive view. That he lays out a view of God where God puts his feet in stocks. God basically stalks him, hunts him down, watches everything he, he has done. And Job is saying, but I haven't done anything wrong. I don't know what I have done that deserves such a thing. And so for Job to look at El Shaddai, God Almighty, this isn't something positive. Because God being El, or El in the Hebrew, Shaddai Almighty, it means that basically as he oversees all things and works everything by his providence, something is wrong. And something is wrong in the way God is treating Job. So in Job 40 verse 2, 
When Job identifies who God is and he says, fine, I'm not going to speak, I'm a small account, I'm a mere mortal, as an answer to God's question, God is inviting Job to contend with him. Now, when we think about this in terms of our canon up to this point and what we hear, we've got to understand the counselors, Job, all theologically are in the same place. The world's pretty black and white. You do good things, God blesses you. Do bad things, God curses you. So I see Job as sort of an application of wisdom. And this is why Job is so confused, because he's saying, I, I haven't done anything directly wrong to deserve this level of suffering. I don't understand how God can do this. And so when he looks at the Almighty, this isn't a positive understanding of God. It's an understanding of a God who uses his authority and power to destroy. So you think of even the picture in terms of not only Job, but even Revelation of the dire warning, where you have this understanding of who God is, the Almighty One who brings his final judgment, and how you have this picture of heaven opening up and God coming in his full glory. Job is taking that vision of revelation of God's judgment and seeing it all opened up against him and saying, I don't know why I'm experiencing this. And so Job is saying, I believe my theology. I believe that when you do good things, you receive good things. And I believe that when you do bad things, you receive curse and punishment from God. So the world is very black and white, very simple to understand a cause and effect. And so for Job, he's being humbled. How do I reconcile this? I know I haven't done anything that's, that's secret. In fact, in 31 verse 33, he says that. I have, there's nothing secret in my heart. I've flayed my heart open to God. What, what's going on? And so what Job does not understand is that there's actually a little wager that's going on. And so there's... Uh, Basically, a, a three-way wrestling match going on that Job doesn't understand. So in Job chapter 1, you have Satan, or the sons of God, presenting themselves before God, which is another thing that uh, becomes rather mysterious how that works, that somehow the angels, the demons, Satan himself, comes into the presence of God, and God sets the boundaries of what they can do. And God presents to Satan the reality that there is one who is righteous, one who is blameless. So God actually affirms Job hasn't done anything directly to correspond to receiving this level of suffering. And as he presents this wager to Satan, he tells Satan that this is one who truly uh, embraces me and loves me for being who I am. So you have Job 1 verse 12, Job 2 verse 6 where you have basically the escalation of the wager. And basically, the wager is real simple. So in Job 1, Satan's able to harm Job, but he can't touch him physically. Job 2, he's able to harm Job, but not allowed to kill him. So the, the point of the wager is where Satan is challenging and saying, well, the only reason Job loves you is because you've made his life easy. As you make his life easy, of course he's going to love you. Make it tough for him. See if he'll truly submit to you. 
And so what this really is a challenge, because a lot of times when we look at the book of Job, we say it's a book about suffering. Now, suffering's in it. There's no doubt. I'm not denying that. That's pretty obvious. Job is in a pretty miserable place. I wouldn't want to endure everything that Job has endured. It's pretty miserable, to be honest. Because basically, he's brought right to the point of death throughout this book as he's trying to think clearly as to who God is and just the description of the sores and what he endures is, is just horrible, just terrible. I mean, Satan is pretty cruel. But the fundamental challenge, that's basically the stage. The fundamental challenge is whether God is almighty enough, that he's really strong enough to save to the uttermost. That's what Satan wants to challenge. So the suffering... That's sort of the stage, that's sort of the superficial thing that's going on. The real issue, and we say, well, how does this really apply to us? What is it really answering for us? It's answering the question, is God really a shield and defender? Like he says to Abram, is God really strong enough, almighty enough to save us through any circumstance we experience in life? And the circumstance brought to Job is intense suffering. And is God able to uh, bring Job to a place where Job will still bow his knee before the living God and affirm that God is who he is? And so when, when we look at Satan then challenging God, God responding to Job, this is something else that's important in 40 verse 2 when God makes a specific question about the Almighty. Will you rebuke the Almighty? That's the fundamental question. Now we start putting this in light of the wager, and God's putting it all on the line. Because if Job raises his fist at the Almighty, God loses. He's not able to take this new humanity and raise up a new humanity to simply love God. And that's the very thing that God is seeking to prove and establish. And Job seeing God as almighty is, is wrestling. Now, he's not fully there because Job 31, 33, he's still saying, God peers into my heart. There's nothing secret. He's one who professes my redeemer lives. So Job has not apostatized, but where Job, actually Barry Webb says it best. Job is absolutely right and absolutely wrong at the same time. He's right in the sense he hasn't done anything to deserve the suffering. He's wrong in how he's addressing God and seeing uh, God as one who has a very simplistic way of working in terms of this age. So where do we find the comforting of the Almighty? Because obviously, Job doesn't stay in this place. God continues on, and praise be to the Lord that Job is broken. Job is, is broken in a good sense, in the sense of truly bowing the knee before the Lord. But the reality is, when the Lord identifies himself as the Almighty, and this is challenged throughout the book, what does it mean that God is the Almighty? Is it frightening? Is it terrifying? Is it comforting? Is it assuring? Well, what does the Almighty mean? I mean, that's really what the book of Job is wrestling with. Uh, what does it mean that he brings judgment? Well, when we mention that Job is one in 5 verse 17, where Eliphaz says there's a, a celebration in being judged by the Almighty, well, Eliphaz gets rebuked. 
He's one that doesn't speak rightly of God. 8 verse 3, we have this understanding of the Almighty from Bildad, that there is a one that uh, the Lord is one who doesn't pervert justice. So again, this is right, but it's a wrong application of what is right, because God doesn't pervert justice. But the assumption is Job's done something wrong. And so as Job suffers, God's not the one who's done something wrong. Zophar, one of the counselors, becomes very close and when he invites Job to see that the, mighty, the Almighty is beyond our limits in 11 verse 7. In other words, we don't understand the, the words of God. Um, by 13 verse 3, Job there is one who wants to make his case before God. So again, absolutely right, absolutely wrong at the same time. Now when we look at the name Almighty in, in Scripture... We find that in Genesis, it's used six times. So to put this in perspective in the book of Job, used six times. Used in the context of covenantal formulas, and Genesis 17 is where we find it, where the Lord gives the comfort that he is the one who is the Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the, the assurance of who he is, the God of the patriarchs, and how he's going to continue this covenantal line as it's used repeating this formula in Scripture throughout the Pentateuch. Uh, we find then four times in the prophets, two times in Psalms, and in Job, uh, we find that it's used over 31 times. So that tells us that this really is a, a theology of wrestling with who is the Almighty. Satan's wrestling with it. The counselors are wrestling with it. Job's wrestling with it. And only the Lord is the one who truly knows who he is. And it's important to understand in how the counselors interact with Job. Their continual answer is never believe in the Lord. I don't know what's going on. I don't understand. I don't know why God's doing this. But something's going on. You still have to believe God is good. You still have to believe he's righteous. You still have to believe there's, there's a purpose to what's going on. We don't know it, but there's something going on beyond our comprehension. That's what we need to proceed with. And rather than comforting him, figuring out how to uh, tend to his sores and his pain, they just continually tell him to repent, confess the sin that's going on in his life, so this suffering would go away. And so when we, we say, okay, so it's dealing with the Almighty, when other people, when they look at the book of Job, another fancy theological word we can use is theodicy. And this isn't um, really that deep. What it simply means is it comes from the Greek, theo being God, uh, uh, decay or, or dikaios is justice. So basically it's a study of God's justice is what theodicy means. So if you ever read anything in the book of Job and they say it's a theodicy of God, all that simply means is what we've been saying. What does it mean that the Almighty is a just God? What does it mean that the Almighty is able to carry out his will? And so it's a, a, a struggle, a wrestling with what is the true justice of God. So when we look at the book of Job and, and the Almighty, when we understand the counselors tell Job to repent, Job never really denies that that, that seems to be the proper solution. 
However, Job has to come to grips with the reality that he knows his heart. And he knows that within himself there hasn't been something directly deserving of this suffering. Job recounts how he cares for the widow, how he sits out uh, in the city gates and, and he's sought out the purpose of the orphan for the poor, how Job himself has made a covenant with his eyes not to peer at immoral things. And so Job is basically saying, if you look at the ethics of the Sermon of the Mount, I understand the ethics of the Sermon of the Mount going clear to the heart. I don't understand this. The Almighty should see that I understand the implications of this, and I, I don't know what's going on. So when Job wrestles with the theodicy or the justice or the righteousness of the Almighty, and he starts exploring this notion of a wrestling match, he comes to grips in 9 verse 34 and 35 that God's too strong for him. So basically what Job's saying is, I want to have a Jacob experience where I wrestle with God and, and I want to see if I can prevail and if I can win. And Job says, yeah, but the reality is he's just too strong. It's not that Job needs to repent. It's not that Job needs to change his mind. It's just, well, I can't triumph over God, so maybe that's not an option. You know, you, you understand, and, and you can kind of chuckle at this a little bit until you realize Job is us. I mean, th this is what I love about the canon of Scripture. If people say God is a tyrant and, and God doesn't really invite us to wrestle with him and God really doesn't want us uh, to really think about deeper things, read the book of Job. I mean, this is as authentic as it gets. I mean, this is laying out the human spirit, the, the struggles of the human spirit, where we struggle. We say, man, I, I know who God is, but right now it's really difficult for me to believe who he is and to really rest in him. And, and you understand there are difficult issues that, that, are, that are addressed here in Job or addressed throughout the Psalms. And so we have to appreciate this about our God. He wants us to come before him in an authentic way. Uh, he's not a tyrant, even as he is the Almighty. So as the counselors continue to basically hack on Job, hack on Job, you have in this book also sort of a John the Baptist type figure who prepares a way for the voice of God, where you have Elihu. And we find in, in Job 32.11, Elihu doesn't speak, uh, because he, he thinks he's too young, he's too immature. Uh, however, when you listen to what he says, he's rebuking Job, he's rebuking the counselors, because he's telling them, when you wrestle with God's justice, the theodicy, how God rules the universe, what God is doing, you're too simplistic, right? And, and this is a problem we have. We don't understand that God is carrying out his redemption in a fallen world. It's messy. Not that, that God doesn't have a clear picture. Not that God is incompetent and unable to carry out his redemptive program. But for whatever reason, God works in the context of us, in the midst of our sinfulness, in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of the common curse, in the midst of injustice in this world, 
And God still rises up. I mean, we can see examples of this with Israel's exiles, where he takes immoral empires and takes one immoral empire to topple another immoral empire, and you kind of wrestle with, well, what's better? Well, the reality is you see how God is maintaining the order of this world while still allowing people to explore and, and being given over to their sin, which is what they want. But nevertheless, uh, we have to understand that God is still almighty and he is sovereign. And so when Job continually asks the Lord to interact, continually asks the Lord to, to uh, wrestle with him and to see, well, when the Lord is calling Job um, before him, and the Lord is calling Job here to dress for action and, and to be a man, uh, the, the reality of this is when uh, the Lord is asking Job to do this, there's a reason for it. That what's going on here is the very thing that Job wants. Job wants to engage in a wrestling match with God. And so as the Lord is bringing him to this place of this wrestling match, the Lord's basically telling him or using the ancient Near Eastern mindset of what you would have in a courtroom situation where you'd have uh, two representatives who could go and engage in a wrestling match. Whoever wins, wins the case. Now, the Lord isn't specifically asking Job to literally gird up and to get ready for the wrestling match and to get dressed for this action. But what the Lord is saying to Job is he's saying, you want to fight? I'll give you a fight right now. So let's fight. Let's wrestle. Let, let's interact with one another. And so when he's saying, dress for action like a man, he's saying, okay, now it's time for you to step up. It's time for you to engage. It's time for you to be part of the battle. And so as the Lord interacts with Job, Job's the one who's been accusing the Almighty. You're Almighty. How can you do this? Your God is supposed to be just. Look at how I suffer. This is another thing that's rather impressive about the Lord. And every time I, I return to the book of Job, it, it's something that's just marvelous to me. All God has to do is basically put his arm around Job, whisper in his ear and say, hey, listen, I got this little wager going on with Satan uh, where he doubts whether or not I'm the Almighty. And Satan doesn't think I can really bring you to a place of repentance and really bring you to a place where you embrace me because I'm good. Uh, and so why don't you just truly repent? Uh, I'll give everything back to you twofold, like the Lord does. And how about we make this little deal? The Lord doesn't do that, does he? There, there is no bargaining along those lines. When he tells Job to dress for action like a man, you have the reality of what the Lord lays out. The Lord, as he goes on, starts speaking of this creation as, as a birthing, speak, well, speaking of himself and his glory, speaking of this creation as a birthing, speaking of the reality of how the Lord guides this creation. He goes on in his speech as he continues in chapter 41 of talking about the two animals, a behemoth and a leviathan, basically a, a big uh, land-dwelling animal that we don't fully know. He leads them around, leviathan, a, a mighty beast that dwells in the mystery of the sea. And, and remember the sea uh, for this, this mindset. The sea is that mysterious place where the dead go, 
They disappear. You never see them again. For the Lord, he, he takes the, this mighty, scary, some speculate, some sort of a crocodile-like thing that's just rather intimidating and terrifying, and it's basically a plaything. You know, he's basically playing catch with it. It's, it's nothing to the Lord. And so the point of what the Lord is making to Job and to us is he's saying you have to understand all the details of this creation. Everything that happens that we're not aware of. The animals up in the mountains that we don't pay, <clears throat> we don't pay attention to. You know, I always love appealing to the ostrich in the speech that it's, it's such a stupid animal. It just leaves its young, runs away, and it doesn't even have a basic instinct to be a mother, to, to protect the young. It just runs away. But the Lord says, I care for the young. I nurture them. I bring them up. You provide food for, for the donkeys. You provide food for all the animals up there, right? The Lord goes through all these details in the creation. And he's saying, do you understand everything I pay attention to as the Almighty? I pay attention to all these details that you take for granted. And here you are, sitting down, complaining about how unjust I am. Do you understand the complexity of redemption is the implication of this? Do you understand how small you are in terms of world history and who I am? That's what the Lord, as he goes through all the realities of what he does, is inviting us to see. To be overwhelmed by the reality that the Almighty, despite this cursed creation, the Lord still maintains it. Despite the fact we said, no, we want to live in a sin-cursed world, the Lord still maintains it. Despite the fact that humanity wants to rebel against God, the Lord still holds back sin even uh, with those who will never profess him. So when you see how the Lord pays attention to all these details, the Lord saying, my justice, my righteousness, my rulings are beyond our comprehension. This is where when the Lord turns to Job the second time, and when the Lord turns and stops speaking, Job finally gives a true confession. It's not passive-aggressive at all. He affirms the reality, I don't understand what's going on. And this is the other thing we, we find in the midst of going through an intense turmoil. There's no assurance Job will ever know what has happened. There's no assurance that Job will ever know the bigger wager going on between God and Satan. That's never revealed to him. But God, by his grace, brings Job to a place where Job says, yeah. I spoke out of turn. I guess I really don't know who you are. I repent in dust and ashes. I'm a broken man. And this is the important point. He's been broken by Satan's temptation. But by the grace of God, he's truly broken and empowered. Because now as he turns unto the Lord and recognizes life is only found in his Redeemer, this is where he truly sees and knows the Lord. So you kind of understand why the Lord presented Job at the beginning to Satan. That Job needed to sort of be humbled a little bit in terms of his own self-righteousness. That's sort of the sense you get in this. And at the end of the book, you see how Job, 
uh, ends up being sort of the priest. And so you have this Christ-like figure that's going on in the book of Job, where you have the one who's exalted, blameless, righteous in his definition and, and identity of who he is, one who's brought low, one who suffers, one who is pushed to a point of, of breaking, where you have Christ upon the cross. Of course, Job doesn't go to that extreme. And then the ultimate exaltation, where uh, Job receives more than what he had. And you have the reality of the Lord's blessing him. But the reality then, in terms of God being the Almighty, and wrestling in the book of Job, I mean, just briefly, yes, we are invited to wrestle with God, a Jacob-type experience. It's not an invitation to wrestle with God in the sense of continually being cantankerous against God or wanting to continually be rebellious against God, but a wrestling to ask the deeper questions. Who is God? Who am I? There's also another assurance here that as Satan challenges God and Satan throws everything at Job that he can, everything, Apart from Job dying, and I'm sure Job was at a place where he's like, just let me die already. I'm sure he was there. When you read of the sores, you read of the pain, you read of the discomfort. It's almost worse to just continually live and, and not be put out of your misery. But yet you have at the end of this, Job coming before the Lord and saying, I don't know you, or I don't know why you're doing what you're doing. But somehow I come to grips with the fact that you're a gracious God, you are a redeemer, and you are a God who is able to triumph. The very fact that that is presented tells us and assures us that God is able to save to the uttermost. And that becomes the ultimate comfort when we hear of God being the Almighty that God does not bring us to a place of motivating us to shame us and to mock us. When we look at Psalm 139 and Job, and, and we take this wisdom literature and put it together, the searching of our hearts is that we truly come to know God and who he is and his graciousness. Because at the end of the day, in terms of the ultimate war that's going on, the ultimate wrestling, who are we ultimately wrestling against? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 with the armor of God. We're wrestling against the powers of darkness, against Satan, against sin, against the things that war against the very essence of who we are. Where do we put our assurance then? In El Shaddai, God Almighty, who is able to save to the uttermost. So who is God Almighty? Well, he is one that Satan ultimately seeks to challenge, to undermine, and to destroy. That's what we know. And we know that God, in who he is as El Shaddai, will not be destroyed. And even in the midst of an intense challenge, God prevails. He doesn't have to bargain with his people. He doesn't have to promise uh, anything beyond what he's already promised. He's a God who is faithful, a God who is good. And it's a call for us in the midst of whatever we face that we continue to wrestle and to take comfort in that. 
The bigger issue then is when we ask the question, is God truly able to take the seed of the woman and bring the seed of the woman into his rest? That's the fundamental thing that Satan's seeking to challenge. And the answer to that in the book of Job is yes, absolutely. Even before the confirming work of Christ, yes, absolutely. God is able to save to the uttermost. And so the assurance that we take from the book of Job, as we read this, meditate upon it, we have these wrestlings, these internal struggles going on. The reality of what we come to is El Shaddai is able to save to the uttermost. So yes, we can wrestle with God, we, we can struggle with what's going on, we can meditate on his promises. But at the end of the day, as we continue to wrestle with God and meditate on his promises, where do we find our hope? Well, what Jacob does in the wrestling match, realizing all he can do is cling to his Savior. And it's the assurance that El Shaddai will bring us into a place of rest. Let us then recognize that the God who peers into our hearts, the God who is identified as the Almighty, is not a tyrant. He is a gracious God who doesn't come to destroy, but to save and to save to the uttermost. Let us walk in the confidence of our shield and defender, El Shaddai. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, we would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.